Welcome to the Readings Podcast. I'm Jo Case and I'm editor of Readings Monthly and a bookseller at Readings Doncaster. I'm also a writer of memoir and personal essays and I teach memoir at Writers Victoria. That's a lot about me, perhaps, but it's in all of these contexts, as a reader, bookseller, as a writer and as a teacher, that I absolutely adore the writer and the book that we're talking about today. Um, So I'm here with Nadia Spiegelman, the author of I'm Supposed to Protect You From All This. It's a beautiful, insightful, charismatic and attractively knotty memoir about mothers and daughters and how we construct our own stories. It's also an exploration of the fallibility of memory and the impossibility of objective truth. Nadia is the daughter of Françoise Mouly, art director of The New Yorker, and Art Spiegelman, best known for the graphic memoir Mouse, about his parents' experience of the Holocaust. In this book, their stories, especially her mother's, are intertwined with Nadia's own, as well as the stories of her grandmother and great-grandmother. And Nadia has been in town as a guest of the Sydney Writers' Festival and in Melbourne for the Jewish Writers' Festival. Welcome, Nadia. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no, it's an absolute pleasure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've been wanting to have a conversation with you about this book for so long. So. <laughs> so Thank you. <laughs> no problem. Um, uh, I'll start with an easy question. Um, Excellent. <laughs> I'm kind of joking. Mm-hmm. Um Your father likes to say having a writer in the family is like having a murderer in the family. Is that how you feel? Oh, you want to start there? Okay, (laughs) sorry. (laughs) Let's start with that. Um, (laughs) Everything from here will be just easy. (laughs) Um, uh, Well, that quote, uh, having a writer in the family is like having a murderer in the family, is actually my father misquoting Joan Didion to me. She said having Ah. a writer in the family is like having a traitor in the family. Um, (laughs) And I put it in intentionally as a misquote as sort of one more way in which we misremember and make things worse in our minds. Mm. Um, I think that there is something inherently, there is an inherent violence to writing about people that you love because you turn them into characters in your own story um, and Mm. nobody sees themselves as a character. Mm. And also you have to freeze time in a way that is unnatural in an ever-changing, ever-moving relationship that you have with another person. Mm. So, for example, part, part of what was difficult for my mother and my grandmother was that my book follows, I wrote it over the course of seven years, and it follows the arc of how our relationships have changed over that time as I came mm-hmm. to learn their stories. But when they um, when they read the book, they they both see like, oh, you're saying that you're at like, you didn't, we were, we fought when you were younger, or that you were afraid of me before you got to know me. And, <laughs> and that is no longer true. So mm. why does it have to exist in print? It never <laughs> happened at all. Um, and, um, and I think that's, that's just an inherent uh, part of writing. Mm. Um, mm. Do you think that your parents were more understanding of that aspect of, um, of a memoir being, um, a constructed truth and one that's not um, 
simple or neat um, because they're also creative people? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Um, I think uh, I I grew up with this fluidity between... Mm. Each of us were people, but we were also characters. Yeah. Um, my grandparents on my father's side, I only knew as characters in his book. And mm. that duality between having a self that is in the world and a self that is sort of flattened and seen through somebody else's eyes uh, was something I was aware of. And I think that both my parents are aware of <laughs> um, But, yeah. They're aware of it now, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that said, my mom and my grandmother, our relationships are so, have been made so much stronger by mm. being able to learn as much about them as I did through the writing of this book. And I think I was able to go places in their pasts and f hear stories that would have been really difficult for me to hear if I hadn't had the shield of a notebook and the, mm. the veneer of a project and a reason why I was going to these difficult places. But but learning those things about them deepened our relationships so fully that I think they can't help but be aware that there's this intermingling between, okay, the book as object that exists in the world, but also the book as process that had like a profound impact on how close we can be. Yeah. Yeah, I find that really fascinating. One of the things I really love about this book is the way that it seems are showing, you know, the way that you take us into the process of making the book and particularly of of constructing stories and constructing selves and trying to, to make, to find a truth and realising that there is not an objective truth. And I think you said that when you started off, you had expected to to be able to by um, hearing these different perspectives and then talking about them and checking, like you you go back and look at diaries and things, that you would come to to this kind of actual truth. Um, is that the case? Yeah, I mean, and even, even when, like, you have these primary documents of the past, like home videos or diaries, they don't, they don't show the truth either. Like, I found mm. these home videos and I was like, ah, oh, finally the truth. But, like, home <laughs> videos are just the happy moments of people unwrapping Christmas presents. And mm. that doesn't capture the complexity of what a relationship might have been. I think, like, even my mother and my grandmother, when they were telling me their stories, there was a moment when my mother came across a diary that contradicted the narrative <laughs> of the events that she was telling me. And she just cast it aside, being like, let's not let's not refer to the diary. Um, <laughs> I'm going to tell you the emotional truth of what I lived through. And she says something really beautiful. She said, you know, I remember things geographically, not chronologically. And mm -hmm. and so she told me her version of them. And that the reason why our pasts are important, the reason why we construct these stories is to understand who we are. But who we mm -hmm. are is always shifting. So our past always has to be shifting as well. And I think, like, and our past is always in conflict where we each hold on to like two different versions of the same anecdote or even two mm -hmm. different anecdotes that lead to a different kind of meaning. And I think, you know, my mom says to me, real intelligence is being able to hold a contradiction in mind. And I think yeah. that that actually applies when it comes to trying to think about what happened in a family. It's not that nothing happened. It's just that you have to be able to hold the contradiction in mind. Absolutely. I think that's such a, such a beautiful <laughs> phrase. And I think a lot of my favourite nonfiction books are ones that that ha are aware of that and that present um, different versions of the truth and then um, are exploring them and maybe working towards 
a greater truth but never feeling like they need to tie it off and, and settle on one. Um, and so that's probably one of the things that I loved about your book. Um, in a moment, I'm going to get you to read a bit of the book so that listeners um, can get a flavour of, of it. Um, Great. I have to say, I'll, I'll just contextualise that by saying that um, the way that I discovered this book and immediately fell um, in love with it and had to have it immediately <laughs> <laughs> was um, uh, your publisher text had put um, the first chapter online, I think, or an extract of it, mm. and... I just, you know, was on Facebook lying on my bed doing nothing one afternoon and clicked on it, read the whole thing and just went, I need to know what happens next. And I got <laughs> up, walked half an hour to my local bookshop, bought your book, brought it home and then just read it until I'd finished. Oh, so thank you. That is how much I love this book. <laughs> <laughs> so um, by, by you're going to read um, a, a bit from the beginning around the first two pages. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe other people can have the same Excellent. experience. Well, I thank did. you. That's so, so nice to hear and I've heard that from, a, from quite a few people that it's, that it's very readable and it's interesting because yeah. the whole time I was writing it, not only did my mother and my grandmother keep saying like but our lives aren't interesting like stop oh. stop right which like to me was obviously Insane. ridiculous because yeah. their lives are very interesting but I had the sense of like okay is anybody ever going to care about this and like mm. the the fact that people read it and conti- continue to read it is really nice yeah and and I think another thing that's great about it is um I heard you talking on another podcast and I think someone had introduced you and then said oh my god I've made her sound really intellectual and like this is a really dry book but it's actually fabulously readable and I like the way you have those two things going on it's really intelligent and really analytical um, and has all these ideas in it, but it's also just a ripping story. Oh, thank you so much. (laughs) No problem. That's the highest praise I could receive. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Chapter one. When I was a child, I knew that my mother was a fairy. Not the kind of fairy with gauzy wings and a magic wand, but one with a thrift store fur coat and ink-stained fingers. There was nothing she couldn't do. On weekends, she put on safety goggles, grabbed a jigsaw, and remade the cabinets in her bedroom. She ran a hose from her bathroom to the roof to fill my inflatable pool. She helped me build a diorama of the rainforest, carving perfect cardboard birds of paradise with her exacto blade. Maman, I asked her when I was four, when will I be a fairy like you? When you're sixteen, she replied. And so I waited, and I watched her. Once, During a thunderstorm in Brazil, my mother pulled the rental car over to the side of the highway by a dark, deserted beach. She beckoned to my brother and me. We uncurled from the back seat and leapt out into the electric rain. We followed her, leaving my father shouting her name from the road, his voice barely carrying over the storm. We stripped down to our underwear. My mother held out her hands, one for each of us, and we ran straight into the water. The ocean picked us up and slammed us down against the sand. We screamed with laughter. We ran back in. The sky fractured with lightning, opened, fell into the ocean. The waves reared twice as tall as my mother. At the car, my father was pale, his voice quiet with awe and anger. Jesus, Francoise, he said, shaking his head. We were late now, as usual, and my mother drove the car fast down the highway toward the pitch-black sky. Though we had been in two accidents, I did not know my mother was a reckless driver until I was in my twenties when friends told me so. The things my mother did not see about herself, I did not see either. 
We fell asleep in the back seat, my brother and I, mouths open, gritty with salt and sand, our hair drying in wild curls. My mother disdained most dangers as American constructs, invented by timid women who washed their vegetables. She was always certain that nothing would go wrong. No one ever told me it was dangerous to swim in a lightning storm, she would say, when I laughingly mentioned the memory years later. Her voice pitched defensively. She did not like to be teased. There were other vacations, too. The vacation when my mother, sick of the other moms who complained about the lack of apple juice at the breakfast buffet, absconded from the resort and let me drive the rented stick-shift jeep along the dirt roads, even though my feet barely reached the pedals. The vacation when my mother booked no hotels in advance just took off driving down the coast of Costa Rica, buying us all the strange fruits that they sold by the roadside. Once in a forest, my mother scooped the earth into her hand and put some in her mouth and ours while she explained about building immunities. We were often sick as children, and then rarely. We knew, my brother and I, that it was only fear that led to danger. My mother cast around us her conviction that we would always be safe, and it held us like a force field. Thank you, Najee. That's so beautiful. (laughs) Um, I think that that extract is is really great for how it captures a few of the things that I love about the book, and um, including there's a kind of there's a kind of romance or magic to the language of it um and you refer to fairy tales a few times throughout and talk about how you loved fairy tales as a kid um did that was that something that you were consciously referencing as you wrote I don't know how consciously I was referencing but it's I loved books about magic as a kid Mm. and it's such an it's such it's so much part of my subconscious in terms of the language in which I think and the language in which I like to read is it's sort of this this ve- not just magic but feminine magic the mm-hmm. sense of like women with agency women with power um and my mother I mean I think at some point in the book I say um I try and describe what I mean by believing in magic as a mm. child. And it's less that I m- believe that like Tinkerbell is going to come land on my shoulder <laughs> and more that like, more that like I believed that everything was imbued with this deep sense of meaning mm. that didn't even need to be fully explained in my own head. But it was like if I walked down the street and there was like, a soda bottle that was just upright in the middle of the sidewalk like that was magic because mm. like there was meaning behind it even if I didn't know what it was and and that's that sense of sort of order imposed on chaos mm. and a narrative to to the world is kind of associated in my mind with this idea of of magic and the idea of fairy tales which have their their very set logic mm. everything comes in threes everything has a very distinct symbolism and i think that that is part of also how we order our our lives and our memories is the sense of like oh well i didn't work the other two times but it's going to work this time yes. <laughs> and um and i think um my uh my mother uh always just I accepted the idea that I mean, when I asked her when I'd be a, when I'd be a fairy, she was like, "When when you're 16." Like she wasn't like, "I'm not a fairy. You're not a fairy." Like this is a weird question. Um, I would like, have absolutely said the same thing yes. to myself. Um, and she also like just instinctively understood what my definition of that meant, which was mm. which was that you know she said she said to me, and it's advice I try and keep in mind that the hardest thing is knowing what you want. But once you know what you want, then you can make anything come true. Mm. And that sense of like real 
power in terms of like, if I want this, and it's not that it's going to come true just by snapping my fingers, but if I work really hard at it, I can make anything happen. That that incredible self-confidence and mm. sense of sense of able being able to change the world um yeah. is is part of what i admired so much about her and like i mean it her magic isn't exterior it's interior when mm. she when she um they moved her offices at the new yorker and they put everything on an open floor plan and she just went in on a Sunday afternoon and, and built walls around her on her desk. Um, <laughs> <So> fabulous. <laughs> yes, she'd been to architecture school before dropping out. She she like came in, she like had somehow gotten her hands on a set of blueprints. She like went to IKEA, got what she needed, walked past the construction workers with her French accent and just put up walls and gave herself a door. And, and nobody ever said anything about it because they assumed that if that had happened, like it must have been supposed to happen. <laughs> and that for me is magic. Oh, absolutely. And I think that kind of determination to create their own stories and and to be in control of their own lives is something that goes back through the generations of, you know, your mother, her mother and her mother before her. Um, and sometimes in ways that are really, really interesting in the way they resemble each other like your mother um was a went through a stage of being a rebel at boarding school and led student protests much later we learned that your grandmother did the same thing and that's why she was never mad with your mother <laughs> yes. doing that um what was it like to find those those similarities between between the generations especially when um there there is a fraught relationship um between your mother and her mother or was and her you know going back yeah um i mean it was one of the things that was most wonderful is that mm. each of these women was so different from anyone else around them um they they broke so many of the rules of what it meant to be women in their times but they were unbeknownst to themselves so similar to each other and, <laughs> and I found that so charming especially because there hadn't been a lot of storytelling my mother mm. knew nothing about her mother's life um, my grandmother knew very little about her mother's life and so discovering these sort of hidden similarities in terms of what they'd been through was was really wonderful there's mm. also so many things that are simply inherent to the experience of being a woman that mm. transcend historical and social context um, so like you can ask any woman what did it mean to you to first get your period or what did it mean to you to like discover that your body was a woman's body and how did you make that into something that was powerful rather than vulnerable um and every woman will have an answer um mm -hmm. even if it's not the same answer the, they're the same questions that we all have to grapple with that are inherent to being female and so mm -hmm. there was also that that traced through the generations but then inversely there was also the fact i mean i when i began writing the book was like was so close to my own adolescence i was 21 years old when i first started oh, yeah. um and and so, like, was holding on to these major grievances in my mind of, like, you grounded me when I drank too much and that wasn't fair because I'm a grown-up <laughs> who can drink. And, like, um, and, um, and then discovered that what my mother had been through with her mother was an order of magnitude worse and that what her mother had been through with her mother was an order of magnitude even worse than that. And, and so seeing how those how sort of the pain had lessened or at least the tra the trauma had lessened through the generations was also very moving. Mm -hmm. I mean I know that um it's 
<laughs> I know that it's almost a taboo to say that um, that writing a memoir is healing um, <laughs> because that's not what they're for. But um, but I feel like, especially listening to you talk now, that because you're writing your memoir was this process of um, of bringing the stories of these four generations together and seeing the commonalities and. Um, and as you said, in the process, you and your mother and your grandmother um, forming a stronger bond through it, um, that there must have been some kind of, I don't know if, I hate to use the word healing, but, you know, <laughs> yeah. healing or growth. I think, I mean, I think that, like, it wasn't what I, what I set out, it wasn't what I knew I was doing in the beginning, mm. but I think that by the end I achieved a kind of understanding that precluded a need for forgiveness mm. that just involved like seeing that every mother had mm. once been a daughter and seeing that they were these complex humans. Um, my grandmother believes in her own version of magic. She has told me about, all about her past lives and her primal scream <laughs> and her uh, extra sensory perception in terms of knowing when people are going to die. <laughs> and, um, um, and she has a lot of friends like this as well. And one of them at a lunch sat next to me and told me all about this thing that sounded so perfect for my book which she called Hypnopopo, and which I found no record of anywhere else on the internet or in books. Um, but she described it as like a, I think she said Hawaiian, but I don't, I don't, I couldn't, I couldn't ever validate this information uh, or verify it. But, um, but what she was talking about was sort of this idea of an impacted family secret that because it's not told, mm. re ricochets down through the generations and keeps having an effect. And the specific example that she was using was that, like, nobody in her family, none of the women in her family had ever been able to stay married and mm -hmm. had never had, uh, very few of them had had children. And eventually she discovered that, like, way, way, way back, there'd been a woman in her family who had murdered all the daughters that she'd had and had buried them. Um, and, like, once the secret was discovered, suddenly, like, like daughters were, new daughters <laughs> were able to be born and women were able to stay married. And like That sounds like a fairy tale. Uh, yes, it sounds absolutely <laughs> like a fairy tale. But on some level, I think that there is something about bringing to light family secrets that is mm. healing about bringing to light the past that is healing for the future in the sense that like there are so many things where even if we don't know them you feel them in your body mm. you feel there was there were things that happened to my mother that once I found out about them even though possibly they had no direct relationship to my life it allowed me to understand certain sort of like ways that she had of moving through the world and mm. things that she had taught me to be afraid of, but seeing where her fears may have come from allowed yep. me to get over my own, and that was really useful. Mm. Um. I, I, I found that, um, I thought that kind of, that um, exploration of um, how, that the body-mind link and the way that trauma or experiences or thoughts that are repressed by the mind come out through the body mm. um, is something that's really interesting through the book and through the generations. Um, was was that something that you kind of discovered as a theme in writing or something that you came to the book intending to? No, something I haven't, I mean, you say it very beautifully. <laughs> I don't think I was consciously, conscious of it. I mean, I think that like there, there's such a uh, uh, you know, you, you live in your body, your body affects mm. who you are, and especially sort of the different ways in which 
my body was a woman's body compared to how my mother's body was a woman's body. My mm-hmm. mother is very um, slim and androgynous and didn't wasn't formed, as they say in French, for when a girl begins to look like a woman um, until she was 16 or 17, mm-hmm. whereas I have a completely different kind of body. I'm like well, curvy. I was formed at like 11 or 12 <laughs> and like and very much so and um and that really affected sort of our our perceptions of our own femininity and the ways that the world treated us as women mm-hmm. um and and so there's no there's no separating how one is a woman from how one's body is, is a woman's yeah. body but yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's true in a lot of ways. Um, God, I'm not going to go down that pathway or I could stay there. Um, <laughs> um, I, it, yeah, I, I, I think that dissonance and that the, the way, the kind of battles that um, are fought over the body, over the daughters' bodies by mothers in this is really interesting too. Um, and it you know, you and your mother had disagreements because, or rather just tension, I suppose, mm-hmm. because she was always on it, you to lose weight. Mm-hmm. But then she had issues with her mother trying to control her body or judging her. Mm-hmm. Um, I wondered, there's a part in the memoir where when you're in Paris and you say um, that older French women have a way of being harsh or judging harshly Mm. younger women who don't conform to their expectations and I wondered if you think that that is is part of that yeah Um, (laughs) absolutely um I I mean I only have a French mother so I don't know I I can't I can't extrapolate fully outwards to be like and it it, well part of I have a French mother but I grew up in New York City Mm. and so part of what was interesting in terms of moving to Paris to get to know my grandmother um, was discovering how much of my mother was my mother and how much of my mother was French. Mm. Um, and, um, <laughs> and I think, I mean, there were so many things where I was like, oh, like my mom, like, like my mom doesn't understand lines. Like she just thinks that like if she, if she can get past people, like that's a, that's a faster way of moving through the world. And then I like came to France and I was like waiting at a supermarket checkout and I was looking down at my phone and then I realized that I'd like been there for half an hour because like because I wasn't like everybody was just like moving in front of me as soon as I looked down um, and so sort of realizing that things that I thought were just my mom or somewhat cultural was interesting but yeah I mean I think that there's I mean there's so much has been written and said about French women and their elegance mm-hmm. and their chicness and their beauty um in the case of my mother and grandmother, it's absolutely true. They are they are they are chic and they are beautiful. Um, and, and wasn't um, your mother even interviewed for that book? Yes, French my mother women was, don't get fat. My mother was interviewed for <laughs> French women don't get fat. Um, so that made um, me laugh. <laughs> yeah, and I think that I I think I mean my mom is from a generation of women who sort of actively turned away from a certain kind of domesticity in order mm. to assert their intellectual and power. Um, mm. So. Um, so I don't think that she was outwardly trying to like I don't I don't think that she would ever say that she was like conscious of sort of a superficial beauty. I know that she mm. was so conscious of that placed upon her from her parents. Um mm. my mother's father was one of France's first plastic surgeons and there was a huge <laughs> amount of emphasis placed on their daughter's beauty. Um and I think she never wanted to to transmit that to her own daughter but 
there are things that get transmitted even if you don't mean for them to be. And I felt it, even though I know that she would say that she never cared. Um, yes, and she did say that, didn't yes. she? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I, that that um, conflict between memories is, is one of the most fascinating things in the book. Um, and I think it's something that most memoirists deal with in some way um, in the construction, but it doesn't often make its way in um, as a central part of the book mm. um, as much as it is in yours. Um, you say, I believed my mother more than I believed myself. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a child, you found it difficult to um, privilege your own reality over your mother's version. Um, and I thought... Did you see this book as, and feel free to say no, you are just imagining things. Um, (laughs) Did you see this book as um, an act of taking control of your story, of your collective past and making your version the definitive one? Yes. (laughs) (laughs) But with all of the consciousness of what it would entail for me to do that and to Mm. try and – because I think that there is – that. even a memoirist who is like very open about how conflicting memories are like there's an obligation to capturing all the truths mm. and i wanted there to be all the truths and i wanted mine to be one of them and not the only one otherwise i thought it would be a much less interesting book um yeah. but i wanted mine to be one of them one mm. that could exist parallel to my mother's and and it does feel like it's the the ability to have sort of like written things down. When I was a child, I used to keep, uh, I say this in the book, I used to keep diary entries about the interactions that I'd had with my mother. And then I would put like this big mm. red R at the top of the page and circle it to remind myself that this had actually happened. It was real. Um, <laughs> and, um, I think, you know, like our, for so long as children, our mothers are the only source of information from the world. They are the world. And when your mother tells you something about yourself, it feels so profound profoundly true like Mm. if if a friend tells you like you're lazy you can be like I'm not lazy but like (laughs) if your mom tells you you're lazy you're like oh my god like (laughs) my my world is destroyed I'm lazy I'm like um, it's mothers have such power to bend our reality in that way because we just Mm. we believe them to know ourselves better to know us better than we know ourselves and um and so having my truth be able to exist parallel to my mother and my grandmother's truth actually gave me the confidence and the distance to really be able to hear what my mother was saying Mm. um, and to really be able to hear what my grandmother was saying. So that even what I just said a minute ago about, like, I don't think that my mother ever consciously had wanted to, like, put her hand on sort of my superficial appearance. I think it was just something that Mm. was subconscious and that I, like, picked up upon very strongly. I wouldn't have been able to say that six years ago. I, mm. It was it was such an important part of my experience as an adolescent that my mother was beautiful in a way that I was not beautiful, and that like we were both conscious of this difference. <laughs> um, mm. That like that I I wouldn't have been able to try and see it from her point of view. Um, mm. And now with the ability to have mine on paper, I actually can. Yeah, um, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it seemed to me that. Um, in some ways, this book is, I mean, you started it when you were 21, as you say, um, and it took you seven, seven, a little over seven years. Yeah. 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 It, it seems in a way that you, it's a coming of age memoir. Um, 
and you're growing through it. But it also, I, I thought that um, those, that sense of taking your truth, your mother's truth, all of these different stories and exploring them together and then actually, you know, in some way for some of them resolving it into a shared story and in others just letting them sit alongside themselves. That seemed to be like almost a maturing of the family story because mm. um, it's, it's, that seems to me to be the most mature kind of truth. Um, and, yeah, I just wanted to ask what you thought of that. <laughs> <laughs> when I think of, of your very generous compliments, I mean, you, you can keep speaking. You take them all. <laughs> I take, I accept. Um, <laughs> I mean, did you, did you, um, did you see it as, um, did you see that final, that, that final portrait of your family as something that was one, I suppose also when I say a more, um, a mature, maybe I mean evolved, but, um, story of your family. And it seems to me that there are so many things that had been coming through subconsciously through the mm-hmm. generations, as you say before, and that by, ha- and there's such a need in all of you to be witnessed or mm-hmm. just to be seen first and foremost, that, that now that that's been done, that it, maybe it frees you of some of the past and not all, not all, yeah. obviously. I hope so. <laughs> uh, I feel that way. Um, I, I, you know, I, I had to, by the time I got to the end of the book, I had to realize that, like, I think, I think I thought that my ending would be something along the lines of, like, and now I am a grown-up. And, like, and that would be, like, the, the, like, beautiful ending to the book. And when I got to actually writing the ending of the book, realized that, like, that was... This hadn't been all just about, like, my own coming of age. And to Mm. make the narrative about that would be to do a disservice to sort of the intensity of what it had meant both for my mother and my grandmother to relive all of their own pasts and to share them with me and to, like, to have to to rethink them and restructure them, you know, as while telling them to their daughters and granddaughters. And also my mother and my grandmother's relationship with each other changed over the course of this time, in part because I was sort of bringing all these things up in part because my mother got to find out all these things about who her mother was yeah. as a girl um, that she wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, so ultimately, I hope that it was more than just like, <laughs> like, and now I'm grown up. Um, and in fact, I mean, it can't be that either because I don't, I don't feel that way. I mean, I feel like mm. as I, you reach a certain point of knowing and understanding someone and it only brings you back to the profound unknowability of any other person Mm. and realizing that like there will always be so much about my mother and grandmother that I don't know and there will always be so much growing that I will still have to do. Um, See, that sounds sounds mature to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm 41 and I I don't feel like a grown-up. Why did I just say how old I am to everyone? I one thing I found really fascinating in the book was um, some advice that your mother gives you, obviously at a time when you're ready to hear it, because it seems like it's advice she's given before and you've kind of been annoyed by, um, and the way that it reflects some ed, uh, like a mantra that um, your grandmother had invented for herself, mm. um, and her, the grandmother's your grandmother's mantra was. You must always want what you can't avoid. If you want it, then it can't hurt you, which is uh, – she 
presented that at school and the teacher was incredibly disturbed. (laughs) 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 And I can see how I can see that, but it's also something that's actually incredibly powerful. Yes. Um, Can you maybe talk a bit about how that idea has come through your family? Yeah. Um, Yes. I think that um, uh, il faut toujours aimer ce qui est inevitable. You must always want the unavoidable, which, Mm. as you say, my grandmother had made, they'd asked her to bring in a proverb when she was eight Mm. years old and she had made one up and this was what she made (laughs) up, Um, which is pretty amazing. Um, Very clever. (laughs) Um, And it, so um, it so describes her ongoing attitude towards life, and it's very mm. much thing that she transmitted to my mother, whether knowingly or unknowingly. That sense of like, you know, my <laughs> I don't know if I should say this on a podcast. Yeah, go on. It's okay. I don't think that this person's ever going to listen to the podcast. <laughs> my, my parents are in an ongoing war with their downstairs neighbors, and it's, it drives my mother crazy. But like, she's so able to look at the like the other day we were talking on the phone, and she was like, "Well, you know." He's an idiot, but at least it means that I have contact with idiots in my life because otherwise I'm just surrounded by such smart people. So this allows me to know what idiots are like. like, um, So wise. I sometimes think that when I have Facebook arguments. So this this sense of like, okay, how how is this actually making me grow? How is this good Mm. for me? How can I want this thing that is... It's um, it's also interestingly quite French as an attitude, or at least Mm. it's not... American. Um, And specifically when it relates to feminism, I feel. When growing up in New York City, I like and and beyond I with my friends that we had so many conversations about sexual harassment, about catcalls and specifically about catcalls. I felt like very, very angry about Mm. the fact that I couldn't go out into the street and just be in the street without my body being commented on. I mean, especially when you live in a big city and you like are formed at 12 years old <laughs> it, it it is very difficult to be told by the world that you are a sexual being when you are a 12 year old who yeah. is going to the supermarket but like it um uh but still like i i felt i felt this real anger at the world and when i moved to france um the attitude of the french women that i met was so different in part because we were a little bit older but also just because it's a different city a different culture and so a lot of several of the friends that I made are architects or civil engineers and they were telling Mm -hmm. me about um like going on a construction site and the first time they went on a construction site and they were like sort of telling this laughing story about like oh the first time I went on a construction site (laughs) I wore my heels and I wore my skirt and I'd like I accidentally like you know I did the cheek kiss and um (laughs) and I realized that like like I I was immediately not being taken seriously and like like Mm -hmm. a guy put his hand on my butt but like rather than being mad at the guy they were like so then Uh. I learned to wear sneakers and I learned to wear jeans and I learned that you handshake and I learned that you and that that agency of like Mm. you know what I'm not going to be angry at the world I'm going to think what did I do that I can do differently that's going to let me move through the world in a way that I want to and I think you know ultimately for women's rights the answer is somewhere in between like you can't just be like you know what I demand no redress from the world I'm just going to wear (laughs) jeans always is not an answer but like but some combination of like you must you must want what you can't avoid. You must mm. move through the world in a way that makes the world a safe space for you. Um, allows you to temper enough of that anger so that you can keep the rest of it for doing something productive. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And your your mother says, I think it's your mother, you can correct me if it's your grandmother, at one point of a man who was vile to her, um, that she didn't 
she didn't want to give him the power to uh, to affect her life. Yeah. And I suppose that ties into to the point of view that you're talking about. Yeah, my mum didn't want to be a victim. And mm. I think that there is a moral superiority to suffering that sort of mm. encourages young women to speak from a place of suffering in order to be heard um, and listened to. And it's can be damaging because it can be damaging to think of yourself as damaged. And sometimes, I mean, what my mother lived through is like the most classic example of being a victim in that particular circumstance that you're talking about. But for her, and and when she Mm. told me about it, I wanted to, I like got angry at her and I was like, but he was wrong to do that to you and you should be angry at him. And this, this was terrible. This was, this is a really big deal and it's terrible. And for her, I was like, no, you know, it was worse when somebody broke into my apartment and stole my radio because that was my space. Like, you can yeah. do whatever you want to my body. I, 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 it's still mine. Um, mm-hmm. and, um, and so that, but it allowed me to understand something really profound about where her power came from and realizing that like my insistence as a feminist of my generation, that she be angry about this, that she mm. acknowledged the trauma of this, like, was actually not going to be helpful for her. Mm. That what was helpful for her was to say that wasn't a big deal. And I just learned not to act in those ways. And I learned not to put myself in a situation where that could happen. And I feel sorry for that man, but I'm totally fine. Um, <laughs> yeah, I found that such a interesting, that, that um, observation about having felt more affected by someone breaking into her space. I was listening to a podcast recently where um, Mary Gateskill, I think, was talking on Fresh Air and um, she'd been raped twice, I think, and once was a really brutal, you know, kind of stranger rape out in, you know, the kind of cliché, and the other was a date rape. And she said that the one that affected her much worse was the date rape because it it was more of a violation of trust and Mm -hmm. the world that she knew and personal safety. And and so what that line that your grandmother, Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, sorry, that your mother had just made me think of that. Mm. Yeah, very, so interesting to hear different perspectives on these things, Mm. I think. And um I feel like these days sometimes we're quite, people want to make sure they're saying the right thing Mm -hmm. and um, it's nice to, I think it's more valuable to really, to tease out arguments Mm -hmm. and come to your own Yeah, there's nuance to everything and it's important to be able to talk about it from all different perspectives. Absolutely. And and also to be able to acknowledge, as I think you do, Cultural change and and that the opinions of different cultures, uh, or sorry, the the um, I guess the attitudes and ideas you have that come from different times or different places, to acknowledge their validity, yeah. um, while also keeping your own you know your own perspective that comes from your um, your time and place. Yeah, we think we think of uh, social change as sort of like this linear march mm. towards progress that that like we started from repression and we're going to end with absolute acceptance but actually like there have been so many stops and starts and Mm. um and it's not one linear progression from from terrible to great like it Mm. there's so many lessons from the past that are useful to keep in mind and that like um I mean, even like different attitudes towards I'm I'm queer and coming out to my mother was mm. was not 
as easy as I thought it would be, given that they were like liberal New York City artists with many gay friends, although they were absolutely accepting and came to understand. Um, but coming out to my grandmother was seamless. Like mm. she understood, and it's and what she understood was my way of being queer, which didn't yeah. necessarily correlate to like like having a label or being a lesbian or being bisexual, but just like the way that I felt about my own sexuality was this sense of like, sometimes I'm attracted to this person and sometimes I'm attracted to that person and it depends on the person more than on their gender. Mm. Um, and and that she understood perfectly because she came from a time before labels and mm. in a time before labels and a time before gayness as identity, that sense of fluidity was obviously there and she yeah. she had experienced it as well um, yeah that was really that was really fascinating and I think it's so interesting the way that similar but different experiences can put each other in context mm-hmm. too because that really you know makes you think again about your mother's reaction not you know not I don't mean that in a blaming way I mean um it just makes you question it and say well why was she why was it harder for her? I think it was harder for her because for her, like, there was a gay identity and there was mm. a narrative for what would happen to gay people and it would involve suffering from homophobia and it would involve it would involve suffering and she didn't want that for her daughter. Mm. But in my grandmother's generation, there wasn't a narrative surrounding gay identity. There was just, like, women who sometimes slept with women and that wasn't a big <laughs> deal. <laughs> like, wow. and, that, and that was so much easier for her to accept, therefore. Wow. Um, <laughs> oh, that that is fascinating. <laughs> um, I'm I'm really interested in the way that you explore the process of becoming yourself in this book um, through investigating how your mother um, and then her mother and hers, but particularly your mother became herself. Um, and in the process of that, I'm really interested in the way you explore how each of you are shaped by your family, personality and environment and how much you subconsciously and consciously construct yourselves. Um, and I just I just wondered if you could talk about that um, process of including all those elements. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, is your question like talking about how I include historical and social context to the story? Yeah, I suppose it's um, the way that identity comes from all those different places. Mm-hmm. You know, it's about um, uh, the family environment that you're in, just the personality, how you're born, uh, also cultural environment. Mm-hmm. Like you say, you've got... Um, Paris um, and the, uh, Paris in the 60s, Paris in, mm-hmm. in wartime, you've got um, New York City now and it seems that I, I just found it really fascinating to kind of look at the threads of how all of those elements had shaped each of you perhaps differently and... You know, one thing similar. that was interesting when I was writing was that I realised that... Um, at around the same age, so 13, mm. 14, at around the sort of the age in which one becomes uh, a, a woman, an adult, mm. or at least enters sort of the beginnings of understanding of what that might mean, I had lived through 9-11 from very close up. Yeah. My mother had lived through uh, May of 1968, and my grandmother had lived through the beginning of the war. And I wondered if 
that was just a coincidence that we'd mm. each sort of had these histor- these sort of the, what we thought of as the big historical influence on our lives happen at around that same age, mm. or if that's the age when you first become conscious of yeah. your social and political context, and therefore things like mark you most strongly and become sort of tie themselves into your narrative and become a part of who you are. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that is really fascinating. And especially, um, I guess, yeah. I one, one thing I found really interesting in the book, I don't know why I keep saying that, it's obviously a million things I found <laughs> interesting, um, was uh, when you're reflecting on, I think, your, your grandmother's experience and saying that you shouldn't judge because you hadn't been in a war, like there'd mm-hmm. be no war. And my immediate thought was, you were there in the centre of 9-11. Um, <laughs> and I wondered, was that something that you were conscious of having omitted in that moment? Or is that that you don't, I mean, that was a war on America. That was an attack on America that then became a war. It became a war, but not on American soil. I mean, I, 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 I don't. started there. Yeah. Oi. (laughs) Yes, I mean, I have, like, yes, there have been many American wars over the course Mm. of my life, but I I don't think of myself as ever having lived through a war, in a war. Um, And I think even 9-11, I think I was especially conscious at the time of the fact that I... I witnessed it from very mm. close, but I didn't know anyone who knew anyone who had died. I, yeah. I felt I, w- I didn't have a scratch on my body. I didn't see any blood. Um, mm. And and it and then it became so immediately mediated as an experience that, you know, you mm. see over and over and over again on television. And then it became a call to war and a reason yeah. to drop bombs. And I was I was so uh, I mean, our our high school, it's a magnet school in New York City, and it was used as sort of this symbol of a, New York City's mm. resistance. We were sent back to school um, when the towers were still, the ground zero was still on fire, and there was an armed guard that we had to show our IDs to, and the residents weren't even moved back in downtown when we were going back to school. And, um, and our classes were constantly interrupted by, like, the clanging of the moving giant beams onto shipping barges that were right outside our school. And, you know, we were so, like... But we, they sent us back to school so we could be the symbol. Mm. Um, and not only that, I felt like we were the symbol of the reason why America was mm. going to war. And I felt like that was not the real reason why America was going to war with Afghanistan. Um, <laughs> and, like, yeah. um, and so and I was so I was suddenly conscious of what war meant, because mm. part of what was so jarring about living through 9-11 was that these were things that were supposed to happen in newspapers, not things that happened in quote unquote my life or yeah. real life, um, like the the fire, the flames, those those were things that you saw pictures of, not things that mm. you saw for real. And it made me so conscious of what it meant to be dropping bombs on schools in Afghanistan. And mm. I, and I, but I I don't I don't think of myself as having lived through a war in that sense. <laughs> I don't yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I guess maybe part of the reason why that really made me go, huh, hmm. you wouldn't say that about yourself, is that. Um, you also said that your grandmother had not had she seen a dead body. I can't remember. What she saw. Was, she saw, she a, saw pig. a pig killed. She saw a pig killed, um, <laughs> which for her was very, very scary. Yeah. Um, and um, and she recounts one moment when she was. They Paris had been evacuated because it was under attack by the Germans, and mm. her father. Um, 
came and get her, sorry, her father came and got her and her mother from where they'd been staying and brought them back into Paris too mm. early. And so while they were driving back into Paris, German planes were flying low over the roads and yeah. they jumped out of the car and hid in ditches. And she remembers that there were, um, there were bodies left by the roadside after that. She also okay. saw a German soldier fall from a rooftop. It was hard mm. to get, I mean, the long and short of it, though, is that... My grandmother's family was quite well off during mm. World War II, mm. and that war is always hard. But that yeah. my 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 grandmother's father sold animal feed, and when um, when Paris stopped having cars, when there was only horses, like his business was doing well. Yeah. And um, and my grandmother's mother fell in love with an Italian man who was selling alcohol to the Nazis in the black market, and mm. one of her main memories of, of the war is, like, that it was her communion, but... Um, but the adults had just ordered this like beautiful piece of salmon and spent the whole time like eating delicious <laughs> salmon or that it was embarrassing to be taken to school by a chauffeur. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, that that for me was really interesting because I yeah. was coming at this from the perspective of having family on the other side of the war. And so to sort of have to think about how we are all always both victims and victimizers, how that we are all mm-hmm. always on both sides. And and also like I my grandmother was young, you know, she was like 13, 14. I don't and even even the fact that her mother fell in love with this Italian man like I don't mm. I don't point fingers of blame I think that people live in the times that they live and they make the choices that they do and not everybody in France was part of the resistance and that's just like that's just the truth it was yeah. a very small percentage of French people and the rest were just living mm. it didn't make them it didn't make them horrible condemnable people they were just living through their social context and and I think that exploring the nuance of that is really interesting i think it's something that is very difficult to do in france people mm. do not like talking about anything other than the resistance um, yeah, yeah, yeah. and and it, it was it was interesting for me to have those conversations with my grandmother um, yeah yeah so that i mean that's the story that mm-hmm. france chooses to tell about itself yeah. during wartime is the resistance mm-hmm. and you're exploring these other yeah i i is it reading the details of your grandmother's experience? It just seems like she was a person living in the world and doing the best that she could mm-hmm. in that time. Um, do I mean your great grandmother? <laughs> I'm getting confused now. Um, but I guess what struck me about the I, I I didn't mean to downgrade your grandmother's experience by saying she saw a pig killed and she'd mm-hmm. seen some bodies, but she hadn't been in the thick of it. But just it struck me as interesting that. You had said that and from a different perspective, I suppose, I could see, you could see that you being in a school that was being evacuated mm-hmm. um, and see, watching the buildings fall out the window and having your parents, I mean, you likened your parents coming to get you in the school to literally coming to get your child out of a burning building and then walking mm-hmm. across, um, that, that to me seemed like it it was it wasn't nothing mm. <laughs> and i suppose by saying um oh i can't you know mm. i can't speak to that cuz i don't have a war i was like oh that's really just struck me as interesting <laughs> i see what you mean yeah yeah, mm-hmm. yeah um i another thing that um i wanted to ask you was your parents origin story is really interesting in the context of your memoir um you talk about how 
Your parents fell in love during a long conversation over several late night phone calls about publishing a parent's story. Um, that your mother was trying to understand how your father could have published a comic about the suicide of his mother. Um, and so it seems to me that those questions of representation and responsibility and debts to and wounds mm-hmm. from mothers have been present in your story from before it even began. <laughs> Do you think that that has ha- had any influence on on you and the stories that you wanted to tell? Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, has has Mouse had an influence or has like... Well, um, I guess Mouse and... But also the fact that um, that you grew up with parents who were talking about stories and what they mean and what it is to write about someone, what it is to write about your mother who's, you know, who owns the story. Yeah. All of that. Yeah, yeah. I mean... um my neither of my parents neither <laughs> neither of my father's parents lived mm. through the publication of mouse so yeah. there was never a moment when my father had to confront sort of the reality of the person versus the reality of the person in the book um mm. but but he but certainly like there the mouse was a book about making a book and mm. and the sort of what it meant to hear those stories and to be telling those stories was integrated into that work and mm. i was i mean in like there's just this this most basic way i was aware of of mouse i was mm. aware of the shadow cast by my father's name and by his work and that if i wanted to write um no matter what i wrote i felt like it would be compared to his work and so mm. so this particular project was a way of doing um what he had done but making it entirely my own yeah um and having the comparisons be there to be made but be there to be made on my own terms if it had been mm. like now just Spiegelman writes like lesbian dystopic science fiction novel like <laughs> not as good as mouse but like, <laughs> and, like that was like my that was what I imagined whenever I like sat down to write and like um and so like this this was a way of like yes, it's a sto- it's a book about making a book. It's like my father appears very little in it as a character, but it's mm. an homage to his work in its own yeah. way. Um, and and certainly, I think the fact that I the fact that my father had done this, the fact that my mm. grandparents existed as characters, I think gave me a sense of it being possible in a way where in other families yeah. it might feel just overly taboo. Um, mm. Mm. I wondered about mm. that. Um, you know that, and even the fact that your father's making art about mm-hmm. about your lives as you're living it yeah. and and your mother is um is also involved in in um in creative work and mm-hmm. and um more working with other people to create work that that must create an atmosphere in which that's just something that's something people do yeah just like you know when I was growing up I thought I'd be a teacher because my parents mm-hmm. teachers yeah um do you remember consciously wanting to be a writer or was it just something that I didn't I didn't um ever think of myself as a writer until mm. a very brief period right after I turned in the manuscript for this book yeah. <laughs> and, and now I no longer think of myself as one um, oh, you're, you're um, holding your book right there. Um, <laughs> um, not only um not only that but like I I hate I hate writing um it's the most it's the most painful thing I can I know how to do it's just it's the only thing that gives me a sense of 
profound satisfaction that allows that makes me feel like I deserve to be in the world. But mm. the act of writing is one of the most painful things I know how to do, um, and and therefore seems like the most worthwhile because you know yeah. I'm like masochistic Jew, like <laughs> it like, um, like so if, it, if, if it's painful, it must be the right thing for me to keep doing. Um, and um, uh, as a cultural Catholic, the same thing. Yeah, yeah I get but that. I think I mean like I I I certainly like. I grew up um, with my dad telling me stories, and then I would tell my brother stories, and then I would I was writing the stories down from a very young age, and I did have the enormous privilege of growing up with parents who did the thing that they were passionate about, and mm. so I always thought of work as like you find your passion and you do your passion, um, yeah. not some place where you go in the morning and come back at night and you stop working. My parents never stopped working, but mm. because work was so integrated to their sense of being in the world yeah. and th- it always seemed like I would have to find something where I could both work and be and they would be one. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. I love that you write about that as being inspiring rather than um, something that was uh, a burden on your lives, your mother mm. being so absorbed in work. Mm. Um, I it's Unfortunately, it's about time to let you go, um, unfortunately for me. <laughs> but before we go, I would just love to ask you, um, as this is a podcast for a bookshop, um, what you're reading at the moment or oh. what you have been reading. <laughs> I'm reading... Um, I can't remember if it's called In the Dark Room or Into the Dark Room. Um, oh, the Susan Felini. Yeah. 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 Um, is it called Into or In? Um, oh, anyway. God, I can't remember. Uh, I wish I weren't mangling that um, because I'm. it's fantastic. I'm loving it. Um, mm. She writes with such uh, sort of mineral sh- coolness and diamond sharp prose about mm. um, her father's transition into becoming a woman, but mm. also how that – how him becoming a woman allows um allows her this whole new relationship with her father who had been very estranged from her um mm. and allows her to interrogate all other aspects of her father's identity um in terms of his hungarian jewishness his past um mm. and throughout refers to him both as her father and as she saying mm. like he she may have become a woman but she will always be my father and i like I like I like it so much. I highly recommend it. Oh, thank you. I had that has actually been on my to read pile, so you've just bumped it up. <laughs> thank you so much, Nadia, and um, thanks for for coming to the readings podcast. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been lovely to be here. 